Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, flat out the greatest novel ever written. And good news, you can get the greatest novel ever written as a paperback, an audiobook, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, don't worry about me. I'll, I'll get my share when you come back with money for the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. And then after that, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy will be fine. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as All Together Now, A Zombie Story and The Book of David. The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, is also available to download for free whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so check those out. That might help you get through uh, the holiday this week. Uh, I'm recording this um, November 21st of 2020, and so we are preparing for a socially distant Thanksgiving. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, after that time, happy whatever day it is for you. Uh, but for all of us uh, listening now in uh, November uh, of 2020, happy Thanksgiving to you. Um, we are going to forego the turkey this year. We're going to downsize to a couple of Cornish uh, hens. We're still making some mashed potatoes, but it's just going to be the three of us, and then we'll Zoom call with our loved ones. Uh, and, and and we'll make some time for them that way. Uh, it's a shame. We'd you know we'd love to have um, our usual big Thanksgiving. Um, my uh, we usually do that with my uh, wife's family, and they do a Christmas giveaway uh, at the same time. And we just kind of do a, a half Christmas, half Thanksgiving mashup, uh, and it's a wonderful time. And hopefully next year. Uh, We'll all uh, still be here because we were responsible and socially distant this year. Uh, and so next year we'll have a celebration that's twice as big, and I'm hoping for that uh, for you as well, esteemed audience. Uh, today, uh, we are chatting with Hannah Khan. Uh, we have an absolutely wonderful conversation. We talk about Curious George. We talk about uh, all of her books. Uh, uh, so many tips for, for writing. You know, it's a great time. And instead of me talking about it, let's just start the show. So here we go. Episode 97 starts right now. Hannah Khan, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you? you so much for uh, making the time to be here this evening. I am thrilled to chat with you. I know we've got all kinds of great things to talk about. Uh, and I always uh, ask all our guests, I, I never summarize other people's books or other people's biographies because that's that's just asking to get in a fight. Ah. <laughs> that's a good idea. Uh, so plan. tell a uh, esteemed audience a little bit about your, your background and an overview of your career thus far. Sure. Um, well, I write... Um, all types of books for kids. I, I started with scholastic book clubs for those um, book of the month that you could subscribe to. And um, that was how I got my start in children's writing, gosh, like 19 years ago. And um, I keep track of it by the age of my older son. That's how I know. Um, and then I moved into trade publishing. I started with picture books and then moved on to middle grade novels. Um, I've done some choose your own style novels. I've, um, I'm still doing some of those. And um and trying exploring different genres um, and just having a great time of it. So all, all types of children's books from me. You actually, you've written a curious George, which I will promise ah. the audience. We will talk more. about. <laughs> yes. yes. Should I tell you a little bit about that? Oh, why not? Sure. Okay. So um, 
yeah, it was, it was a really nice surprise because I had, I had written a couple of books, um, one that mentioned Ramadan, one was about Ramadan, the other one mentioned Ramadan. And the, um, the publishers of the New Curious George books, um, HMH, came, came to me and said, we've seen that you've written these other books about Ramadan. And uh, we have a series where Curious George celebrates different holidays. And we have them celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah and St. Patrick's Day and Halloween and Pray Day and all sorts of holidays. And they said, we think it's high time that he celebrate Ramadan and what do you think and I said I think that's a great idea um so I ended up writing this little board book um where Curious George and the man with the yellow hat uh celebrate Ramadan with their Muslim friends and um never expected that it would have quite the reaction that it received but it was a really nice um I guess affirmation of of the need for books like that and um what it means to people to see themselves represented in that way by in this case it was sort of the mate the first time a mainstream character like that had had included muslims in this way and so the reaction was just really really overwhelming and um nice to see so that was a, a fun so little what kind of reaction that did, did, did it cause well it when when it actually became available on I guess Amazon I didn't know that it had been posted you know I was a writer for hire I was you know offered to do this I thought it would be really fun and um and it would mean a lot to to my community and also to my kids and so I wanted to do it um but I wasn't super involved in the production and once I had seen the final art I wasn't sure even when when it was pubbing and when it was posted on social media I guess somebody got wind of it and so it started being shared and it went viral and people started tagging me saying oh have you seen this because they knew I was a children's author and I was like oh actually I have seen that and so um yeah and then it just from there it sort of became this um media little tiny little media sensation but I got to be um, you know, on television, the morning, local morning show and, and NPR and Canadian broadcast and all sorts of um, news outlets and, you know, print outlets talking about this, this book. And, um, and that was just, and what it meant to people and, and just the, the huge reaction that I got. So gave me a little, my little five minutes of fame too. So that was fun. Well, thus far now you're on this show brace yourself <laughs> <laughs> exactly my, my first five minutes of fame now I get more <laughs> um I mean did you not have some expectation when you sat down to write a curious George book that oh this will be in libraries everywhere this will be the book about Ramadan for a lot of young readers um or did you not have that pressure on yourself which might be better um I think I mean I'd hoped it would but it was it's actually a board book and because it was this um, series of, you know, in a series of books that were already established, there was sort of a, a formula to them. So there's like, it's literally a seven page tabbed board book. So there wasn't a lot of room for storytelling, but compared to the other ones, I wanted it to be more of a, of a, have more of a flow. And some of those, like, since it was divided up, each tab was sort of an individual chapter where, um, you know, something would happen and maybe there'd be a song on one page and even the rhyme structure might change from, page to page, but I decided I wanted to sort of tell a story of Curious George and this family and his experience sharing in Ramadan. So even though it's broken up into little chapters, it's one continuous story. Um, but, you know, since it was just a simple format and, you know, intended because of the, you know, the board book format, I didn't expect people to be buying it for their 40 something year old children, which is what ended up happening. I think, you know, just to what I was saying earlier about people being so excited about being included this way, they were like, my son slept with a Curious George doll as, you know, as a baby. And now I want him to have this, even though he's all grown up. And, 
So stuff like that, I think I, I wasn't prepared for. Um, and I was, of course, hoping it would have a big reaction, but didn't didn't know what what it would actually mean until it was out there and, and people started to see it. I think if a steamed audience listens very close, they can hear the faint beep, beep, beep. That's the money truck, the Curious George money. Just <laughs> in your driveway on a daily basis. Well, I wish, I wish, <laughs> except for the fact that I was hired to write that book. Um, so hopefully it made the publisher a lot of money. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, all kidding aside, it was huge for me just to have that, you know, reception and, and reaction and to know it's in so many people's homes and that it just means so much to people. Like that's, that's been great. Apart from the money, you know, <laughs> or the lack of money. Oh well, um, no, we'll get the money truck going now. Cause you've got a new book, Amina song, which will be available March 9th, 2021. You've got a new book and uh, paperback, uh, more to the story. Uh, we're going to talk about all of that available now, esteemed audience. But before we do, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about your start in publishing. I've just learned that if I'm going to do that, it's better to make sure I mention the publication date and the book uh, <laughs> before, we, uh, before we do that. But So how does one get started? You said with uh, Scholastic, because you were writing for a couple of different groups with them, which sounds like a really smart thing to do to launch your book, uh, to launch your, your career. Um by working, so how'd you get hooked up with Scholastic Book Clubs to write with them? So it was actually through a friend. Um, I, when I visit schools, I talk to kids about how you never know that the people you're sitting around right now could shape your life later. Because it was a friend of mine since second grade, who um, you know is a dear friend of mine, who knew that I loved to write, who had written with me on the school newspaper in high school, and we had done lots of writing projects together, you know, throughout our schooling. Uh, she was working as an editor for Scholastic and knew I was a writer, even though I was working as a technical writer in public health at the time. So I wasn't doing anything children's writing related. And she needed help on a series that she was working on where she was having to do some serious rewriting um, and asked me if I would maybe be able to give her a hand. And she said, you know, you won't be credited. Um, and I, but and we can pay you this tiny amount, but it might lead to something. So I decided to try it. I think I was overconfident at first thinking, well, I know how to write. You know, like a lot of people think like, oh, how hard can it be to write for kids? And so I thought I would, I would try and then realize very quickly that I was even more boring and, you know, l less exciting for a child to read than the original draft. So I really struggled for a bit to try to match the style that she was trying to achieve and looking at before and afters of other books she had edited and finally felt like I, I was figuring it out. Um, and luckily they were happy and wanted me to continue. So over time, I ended up working on you know my own books in the series and other series. And for me, it was it was a nice crash course in learning how to write for kids. And um, some of the rules that I had learned about writing you know, thrown out the window, things like never use exclamation points or in this type of writing too, it was more activity oriented and little snippets and sidebars and um, stories to include along with activities for kids to do it was a lot of, you know, drumming up excitement about espionage and about space and, um, you know, different subjects like that. So it involved a little bit of research and then writing. And, and for me, it was just a, a great way to connect with books for kids and to take myself back into that mindset of being a kid and what would make me excited. Um, and so that was, yeah, it was a great school for me to learn how to write for kids. Prior to that, were you on a trajectory to become a writer of some kind or? Well, I had been doing, I had been working in, in international public health and I was working communications specialist was my title, um, which 
means nothing really. <laughs> and so I was, <laughs> I was doing a lot of writing and editing, but it was uh, for, you know, international public health organizations about, you know, diseases and, um, you know, research that was being done. And so it was, you know, what, it was important work, of course, and, and, and a good type of, uh, you know, a good way to use my writing skills, but it was very different and a very different audience. And so th the one parallel though, was I was taking a lot of research based writing and trying to make it more accessible to different audiences. So um, once I started writing for kids, also I stayed in public health for a while and I was doing both. And I realized that writing for children really made me a better writer for adults too. Um, and especially as I was working with researchers who were so, well, one, they love the passive voice like crazy. And they also loved all of their data and just, you know, a lot of detail. And sometimes, you know, the whole idea of less is more and just you know, um, get to the point and stuff like that was was really helpful. Um, and and just trying to simplify things and make them more more understandable. So. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I started. And I, I, I always loved writing. It was something that um, I was excited about as a, as a kid. I wrote, like I mentioned, I wrote for my school newspaper. I used to write at home for fun, but I never really imagined creative writing as a path for me. I think, if anything, I thought of journalism as a possibility. You know, I thought of perhaps, you know, well, I ended up in communications work, but maybe even law school or things like that. But I, I never thought of writing creatively as even something I would, I would pursue in any way. It was, wasn't until it fell in my lap that <laughs> I decided that it was something I could try. Well, you were a big reader, right? Because your mother would take you to the library on a regular basis because children was, should be seen reading and not heard complaining <laughs> about nothing. Exactly. Yes. Yes. A lot of my life spent at the library, especially um, when, when I was in elementary school, especially. And I, you know, compared to kids today, I didn't have a lot of activities on my calendar and I wasn't scheduled. I didn't, I didn't do a lot of summer camps. And so the library was my summer camp and my after school activity. And we would go with bags from the grocery store that we would fill up. And, and I remember going home with those bags and that was like what I had to look forward to. And I loved it. Um, so a big reader, a big rereader, that was one who would sort of venture into the new the new book section, but also always take a few of my favorites home again so that I could have that comfort of knowing that I was going to enjoy some of these books for sure and then get to delve into new stuff that I hadn't looked at before. Um, but yeah, I was an avid library fan and that particular library that I grew up going to, which was the Rockville Public Library, um, was torn down about 15 years ago. and and um, bulldoze like to the ground and and they they built a new fancy library and I literally cried when I saw it going down because I felt like it was literally a piece of myself and my my childhood just crumbling away and um and it took me a while to accept the new library which is very very nice but um just just felt very different so yeah now somebody's there with a bag and they're they're picking your books in there they're putting them in there right oh, oh I've never thought about that but yeah I hope so yeah and that was amazing to go to my public library and see my books there like that was so strangely full circle amazing so yeah so um, you have siblings who were at the library with you as well correct mm -hmm. did they go on to do some form of writing or um no, actually, they did not. Um, my, yeah, no, my sister was a huge reader as well. 
Um, and she would just devour, she would speed through books at a pace that I never, I'm a pretty fast reader too, but she would just be done in minutes. I was like, how is this even possible? And she's still a huge reader. Um, she's a great supporter of me. She reads my work and gives me critique, which is lovely. Um, but she went into, into science and medicine. So very, very different. Um, and then my, my brothers are also in non-writing fields but one of them one of them dabbles a little bit and I wish he would actually I keep telling him that he needs to write because I think he has he has a story great storyteller instincts and um, great ideas and so I keep telling him that he needs to write something so maybe one day he will well it's the first step toward uh you and he collaborating on a project yeah, right perhaps yeah, yeah that would be well, we might kill each other in the process, but <laughs> he's my younger brother after all. But yeah, your your sibling relationship may be terribly scarred, but the world will enjoy a wonderful novel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, good idea though. So when uh, when did you think, okay, well, I will write fiction, and then why specifically middle grade or or, or picture books, children oriented fiction? So I think. Um, once I had that chance and that taste of children's writing and realized it was something I wanted to keep doing, um, around the same time I became a mom. And so I was taking my son back to the same library I had grown up going to before they bulldozed it. And and I, I was really looking for representation that I didn't have as a kid. And um, you know, when I was growing up and I was filling up those bags of books, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that my story was missing or that I wasn't on the pages. I wasn't consciously aware of that. I think I subconsciously was. And I know now looking back at even the things I wrote that I was colored by not having seen myself. Um, but I definitely wanted my, my children to, to have the representation that was missing. And I, I kind of just assumed that it would be there, you know, all these years had passed since I was a little kid. And um, so I did actively go look for, for literature featuring Pakistani American Muslim kids like mine, and uh, I couldn't find anything. And, um, and it was really my son being in preschool and being asked by one of the teaching assistants during a Ramadan party um, to read something to the kids. And she had actually printed something off the internet about what Ramadan is and uh, offered for me to read it to the kids. And I was feeling a little shy and wasn't used to presenting to kids back then. So I was like, no, no, you know, why don't you go ahead? And so she started reading and it was just this horribly boring, you know, Wikipedia type entry about what Ramadan is using words that kids couldn't understand. And these are four and five, like three and four and five year olds who were just completely bored and confused. And that's what made me realize that, you know, there's nothing that's appropriate. The books that I could find that featured, you know, Muslim characters were either written by Muslim publishers for the purposes of teaching people how to practice their faith. Like, sort of like, you know, Quran stories for little hearts or, you know, things like that. Um, or there were super reference books like by National Geographic about, you know, what is Ramadan or, you know, that type of very, very basic, um, nonfiction book, but nothing with a story, nothing that really simplified things down to the perspective of a kid, nothing that to me made the holidays feel accessible and um, relatable. So for me, that that was what I thought, well, we need this. And um, and that was sort of a, the idea that launched Night of the Moon, which is my first picture book. Um, so it was very much in reaction to seeing what was not in existence at the time and wanting to really with the, with the school library and public library audience in mind, wanting to create something that fit that space. And when I 
got to publish Night of the Moon, which came out with uh, Chronicle Books, which was um, wonderful. And I, I love them. They, they create really beautiful books and um, little works of art, I think, with amazing paper and foil on the cover and things like that. Um, I thought, well, that was fun. You know, <laughs> I wrote a book. <laughs> and even though I had the scholastic titles under my belt, I still didn't feel like I could call myself an author. I didn't really consider myself a professional writer. And, um, and then time passed and I thought, oh, well, you know, the Ramadan book is great, but it's still a holiday book. Like, it would be really nice to go to a bookstore um, and see a book. You know, I noticed that even on the little section that had the religious section or whatever you want to call it, they had, you know, books about Christianity and books about mostly and then a few books about Judaism and then nothing about Islam. And I realized that the Night of the Moon was a seasonal book that would be would come be ordered during the holidays and come and go. So um, so that's when I thought of Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, which is a, a concept book that introduces colors, but also introduces things that are special to Muslim people. And I think with both my first picture books, I, I tried to sell it as something bigger than a story just about Muslims. So Night of the Moon was about the lunar cycle and about Ramadan and Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns is a book, you know, you learn about colors and learn about Muslims. And I felt like I needed that hook to try to convince publishers that it was worth something. Um, but also, you know, maybe to try to gain as, as wide a readership as possible. Um, and, and so it sort of grew from that. That was sort of what made me want to, to publish books about people like me. Um, and then it sort of evolved from that and the industry evolved. And I feel like, um, you know, the Carrie's George Ramadan book came along and, and others. And then I, I really, I think the middle grade novel, Amina's Voice, my first one really grew out of it being the, representing the type of book I would have loved as a kid and would have wanted to have read. Um, and in many ways, Amina is like me, um, a child of you know, growing up, although she's growing up in today's world, like, you know, just trying to figure out life and, um, and, you know, an everyday kid. And that was to me really important to have that representation where her identity is not her struggle. And uh, I think when I was growing up, the few books I did see where it, a, a person was uh, non-white or, um, you know, maybe coming from a different culture or had parents who were immigrants, I felt like the common story was a, a bit of um, insecurity or, um, you know, self-hatred almost about, you know, why am I this way? Or why do my parents have an accent? Or why can't I be like, you know, this this kid at school? And, and then maybe coming to accept themselves or their culture and being proud. But I felt like that was so done. And I really wanted... Um, my characters to not for their identity for not not to be their issue um, and for them to be unapologetically who they are and, and deal with regular kid challenges um, that all kids go through. I definitely want to ask just a little bit more about representation, but first a cynical question jumps to mind that I can't help myself from asking. Sure. Uh, if you have the option for two picture books, one about colors that can sell all year long, but one that's about a holiday that can come back every year and you can go back and, and, and promote it every year. You've got both, but which is preferable? <laughs> um, well, I did mention Ramadan in, in Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns also. Um, 
Oh, covering all the bases. I like yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just because it's such an important part of, of the faith. But yeah, I mean, honestly, both. And, you know, I, I'm grateful that these books are still backlisting well. Like, to, I mean, it, Night of the Moon came out in 2008. So it's been around for a long time and it's still in print. And um, so that that's amazing to see. Um, and just the reception that these books have gotten, you know, those two, I think, were what prompted the Ramadan Cares George book. And it's sort of in the slow build where people, I think the industry is slowly realizing, too, that these books have value, that people do want them and, um, and you know, they, they can make money off of them because obviously at the end of the day, that's what they care about. So, um, I mean, apart from changing the world and <laughs> enriching people's um you know, lives, of course, of course, but um, doing it that the lights don't stay on. Sure. Exactly. It's a business. So they need to see that these are profitable for them too. So yeah, I, I think I might've trailed off and forgotten your question or half of it. <laughs> oh, I was just, uh, it wasn't a very serious question. I was just wondering uh, for picture book artists who are thinking that they may only have, to, they, may, they might only be able to choose one. Is it better to have a consistent seller or get that sweet holiday seller? And every year, you know, you've got another shot at, okay, this year we're in quarantine, but next year I'll be back at the bookstores and the libraries. Yeah, well, I do think a lot of people, I mean, you do see a lot of books around events, you know, like the spooky books that are coming out now for Halloween, and they're doing great right now. But, um, but of course, they have that limited time frame, and, and you hope that. But I think you can't go wrong with either, or both. <laughs> Well, I mean, ideally, you have a nice long career and you write, uh, you write plenty of each. Um, so talking just a little bit about representation, then we'll, we'll start talking about your book specifically. Sure. Um, but what difference do you feel that having books um, uh, about Muslim, um, uh, Muslim American characters would have made for you as a child reader? And what difference do you see it making for readers that are enjoying your books now? And also, what's your favorite reader reaction to something you've written? Oh, wow. So I think, well, I mentioned that I, I know that it did make a difference in my life, even though I didn't realize it when I was a kid. And I think like so many people, when you, you don't realize what's missing in your life until you finally see it. And I think for me, it wasn't until I was 30 that I first picked up a book and felt like I had that, what Walter Dean Myers called the, the shock of recognition and seeing myself on a page. And it was The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. And it wasn't even that, you know, the characters were exactly like me. They were a Bangladeshi American family. Um, the protagonist was male, you know, it wasn't like, oh, this is exactly me. But the immigrant experience, this immigrant family and the main character's mother was so reminiscent of my mom that it was it was jarring um, and amazing and powerful to see. And so incredibly validating, too, to see your story on on a page and um, and it took me that long, you know, to be 30. And and even though I didn't realize it as a kid, I had started looking probably in, in college a bit more and started reading South Asian American literature, South Asian literature, um, which I could relate to to a point, but it was still mostly people in India writing about being Indian. And I could identify to certain with certain cultural elements and you know, a sari or a mango or you know, things like that that were significant to me, but it still wasn't my story. Um, and how I realized eventually that, apart from starting to look for it, the representation as I got older, uh, I think what made me realize uh, that it did affect me was going back and reading my own writing from when I was a child. And I actually wrote a family newspaper 
And I talked about what was happening in my family and I had issues of it. I used to tape it together. It was like line notebook paper and I had different sections and it was really fascinating to find a bunch of these in a box. I used to save my writing and, and it was like this time capsule, you know, going back and reading about my thoughts as a fourth grader or whatever I was when I was writing it. And what I noticed, and I, I talk about this when I, when I talk to kids and I show them actually pages of my scan pages of my family newspaper and how even though I had sections devoted to food and, you know, spe very specific aspects of life, I did not mention anything about my background or culture. You know, so even though I grew up in a Pakistani American household and we ate Pakistani food almost every night, there was Urdu being spoken at home. My mother wore shalwar kameez, our traditional clothing, every day. Um, you know, I was Muslim family, Muslim traditions, and all of that. Like none of that was in my own family newspaper, and I can only imagine that I left all those details out because I thought nobody cared about them. I wasn't seeing them anywhere else, you know, not in any of the literature I was consuming, not in the media, not in television or film or anywhere else. So, um, is this a newspaper to be consumed just by your family or for the school as well? Oh no, this was a family newspaper that was really probably read by nobody. <laughs> which I, <laughs> uh, maybe my parents read it. I it did include a lot of hints for them. It was like a lot of tattling on my siblings and, you know, um, <laughs> what I wanted, you know, for my birthday and things like that woven into editorial letters and things like that. But, um, but yeah, it was just for fun. And, you know, and that was where when people asked me, did you always want to be a writer? You know, I think I did always want to be a writer. And I always was a writer. I just never thought it was something I could do. And I never, I didn't know any authors. I'd never met any. I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. So I couldn't even check to see if an author I knew or an author I liked was alive or dead. They were just names on books for me. So it wasn't even something I thought I could do. Um, and the only author picture I ever saw was this woman, um, Barbara Cartland, Dame Barbara Cartland. She wrote uh, historical fiction romances. And my mom had a collection of them. And on the back cover of the book, there was a picture of her. And she's this imposing woman she's silver haired and she's wearing fur and she's sitting on gilded furniture with a little dog and, and to me that was what an author was you know I, it wasn't anything like me so it wasn't anything I considered but um, I think the lack of representation really added to that too and I, I can only imagine what what it might have been like had I seen myself and what stories I might have felt comfortable sharing about myself in my own life um, and now just to see you know, the other part of your question, kids react to, to seeing themselves. I mean, it's, it's amazing to have kids, even, even when I visit schools to, if I mention certain things or when they've read, you know, parts of my books or they can identify with things I'm talking about to see them, you know, kind of bursting inside or like squirming or making the connection sign or doing all this stuff because they, they, they finally see someone like themselves. Um, and just some of the letters I've gotten about, you know, kids saying that they felt prouder about who they were or how they, you know, just in so many, in their own words, they're basically saying that they finally felt seen and, um, and how validating that, that is for them in, in different ways. So, um, I think the most moving I ever, mo moving letter I ever got was from a, a little girl talking about how, um, you know, she felt prouder to be who she was and that it made that kind of difference in our life. And I was just like, wow. Um, so yeah, things like you that. You take a letter like that and you frame it where you can see it while <laughs> <Exactly>. you write. <laughs> I have a folder, a special folder where I save them all. And when I have those moments where I'm like, 
nobody loves me then i i pull them out and it makes me feel better um but yeah <laughs> definitely i'm jealous that sounds like a heck of a letter yeah no it really was um and yeah they're definitely something i save and um and draw from <laughs> whatever i can so I'm trying to think how to follow up that question without without sounding trite <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let, let's get to it. So um, at what point you're writing for Scholastic Book Clubs, you've got big plans to write picture books and take the world by storm. When do you hook up with a literary agent? And is it a, an editor first or a literary agent, then an editor? What's the path that gets you in a position where you can start publishing these books? So for the picture books, I was, you know, unagented and I was able to sell directly to the editor and that was wonderful. Um, but when it came time to want to publish my novel, um, I, I had to go out and, and find an agent. And so I went through the painful process of querying and, and getting rejections or just flat out ignored, like many of us are, um, until I found my agent, and um, he's been a great supporter ever since, Matthew Blanc, and he um, he he submitted, he, you know, he helped me revise Amina's voice, um, and we you know sent it out on submission, and like everyone else, I got a bunch of rejections, a bunch of very confusing, contradictory feedback, um, it, but um, but ultimately. Uh, I went through and revised it and uh, I have a wonderful writing group that was able to help me identify what was missing in that story. I had actually written it initially in the third person and I think there was something just off about the voice, which was ironic since I called the book Amina's Voice. And um, I went back and I wrote it in the first person and that really helped, I think. Um, I think maybe as a novice novel writer too I think I was telling myself the backstory I needed to tell myself a lot of backstory so in my first version I had maybe too much about the parents and their immigrant experience or um you know there was stuff about the, the family room pillows you know, and like the and things that you know, the 40 year old woman was creeping into the story for sure um so when I went back and and just changed that point of view and rewrote the book from from Amina's perspective, I was able to delete those scenes that didn't matter. Um, and maybe, and really other than that, I don't think I changed a whole lot. Like the plot stayed the same, the storyline stayed the same, but it was just that shift in perspective and trimming and tightening up a bit. Um, I also changed her motivation a bit um, and that helped as well. And and ultimately then um, Matthew helped paired up with Serene at, at Salam Reads. And when uh, she made an offer on the book, we didn't know that it was going to be part, we, she was at Simon & Schuster. We didn't know that Salam Reads was going to be a thing. It hadn't been announced yet. And so that that information was embargoed and it was gonna be this big announcement with the New York Times. And so she made the offer and we were in, in the contract negotiation when that news came out. So I learned with everyone else about Salam Reads and I didn't know and was so super honored that Amina's Voice ended up being the, the book to launch the imprint, uh, which was just amazing. Uh, and, you know, to be part of this groundbreaking, groundbreaking, you know, change in the publishing industry, but also to, to launch it was just incredible. And it felt like this amazing home for my books. And, um, you know, Zarina and I had a great um, 
common vision for what we wanted. So it's it was just fantastic. Was it uh, amazing and exciting when you get that news, or is it a little bit petrifying? Because you already had the terror. This is my debut novel, but now on top of it, not not just am I writing on it, this entire imprint possibly. Uh, <laughs> writing well, on the lunch yeah, well, I knew she had other authors in in, in the wings, so uh, luckily, and um, no, it just made it so much more exciting to be, you know, part of something big, and you know, having like started when I had, and and seeing just the evolution to even believe that something like this was possible was so exciting. Um, and it was what I, you know, I, I hoped for for so long. So I was just so proud to be a part of it and happy to see that something like this could happen. I was so proud of Zareen for making it happen and to sign a Schuster for believing in it. And, um, so yeah, overall it was, it was, it was just super exciting and I'm still really, really proud to be publishing with them. Well, now, when they make the movie version and the set designer <laughs> comes in and they make the pillows the wrong color, is that going to I know, right? Like, they need to be fringe on the, on the corners. Yeah, I know. I was like, what was I thinking? You know, and I was like, maybe a kid's room, you know, you could pay attention to what the poster is on the wall or something. But I was like, I don't think anybody cares about this. So the upholstered pillows. So I must have been in, in decorating mode or something at home when I was writing. So at that moment, when the book is published, uh, um, the new division is launched. Um, do you feel at that moment that you've accomplished a big part of your mission? Probably not all, but you did it. You, you've got a book out there that represents a character like you, and the, the story is not specifically about uh, who she is um, as simply as a, um, a construct but about a character and her and her struggles within just being a person. Mm-hmm. Um, does that fulfill you that, yes, mission accomplished, I've done it, uh, whatever else I do for the rest of my life, I've got that <laughs> knocked out? Uh, or do you feel like, well, that's a pretty good start, but here's some stuff I want to do now going forward? Um, definitely the latter. I think, I mean, it was, it was, it was huge. And I think I'm, I'm the person who needs, um, needs validation. Like I mentioned, it took me a while to even use the word author. I couldn't, even though I had a bunch of books under my, I would say, I, 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 I work in communications and I write children's books. You know, and I just felt awkward. I felt like it was braggy to use the term author or somehow, um, you know, I don't know. It just, it was strange for me. So I think for me, um, you know, having a novel that was super exciting and having the, you know, the reaction that it got and, and seeing people, people, enjoy it and want to read it and um you know the state lists reading lists and stuff like that that was just so so exciting and um but definitely i had other ideas in in the works and wanted to see um you know what else was possible and i feel like for me with with amina's voice like i mentioned it was i didn't want to write and i struggled you know when i was trying to get it published i did think about the types of stories that might be um, more attractive initially to to editors, you know, that, and I even thought when, because I was like, this is a quiet story, Amina's, um, you know, it's a lot about her personal journey, like finding confidence, dealing with everyday struggles, like, you know, friendship changes and adjusting to middle school. And what do you do when your best friend starts to like a girl you don't like and that kind of thing, which, um, and apart from having you know, this loving family and an uncle coming from overseas and and trying to um, negotiate that new person and, and all this other stuff. But, um, you know, it wasn't, 
it wasn't about, you know, some big hot topic or, you know, something that, um, you know, people might associate with Muslims. And, you know, a lot of the publishing I had seen even earlier about um, taking place in other countries or things like that, that, that stuff that focused on some of the pain issues or challenges around being a Muslim um, and uh, or gendered stuff or, you know, just, just big issues. And um, and so I kind of felt like, oh, you know, if I, if I stuck some of this in here, it might might get some more attention. Um, but I just, I really didn't want to do that because I just felt so, so in love with this family and I just felt like they deserved a regular story. And, and there is, um, it's not a spoiler, I think, cause it's, it's, it's mentioned in the, in the marketing copy, but, um, you know, there's an event that takes place, um, that affects Amino's community. And I, I did put that in there because I was, it's something that, affects our communities and other communities. And, um, sometimes we have these external, you know, forces at play, but, um, it wasn't the point of the book, you know, it was really, for me, it was Amina's journey and how she grows as a character and how she confronts all these different aspects of her life. And so the event that happens is towards the end of the book. And, um, and is, you know, like I said, I didn't want it to be a major, the major plot. And it was interesting that even after it was, it was published, some some people were like, oh, you know, um, that I, I why didn't that happen earlier, or that should have been the focus of the story. And for me, that was really important that it wasn't. Um, and and you know, because it was something that happens to her her mosque community, and you know, it's in a very special place to her. And I built it up throughout the book, you know, to show how how special this place is and um, and what it means to her family, and then when it is affected negatively. That, what what that would feel like um but in general i just really i really love the idea of just writing stories with muslim characters in them where they're confronting all sorts of challenges um so in more to the story for example you know it's which is um inspired by my all-time favorite book when i was growing up little women um you know jamila my protagonist is is you know facing challenges around being on her school newspaper, which is something I drew from my own personal life. And she actually has a family newspaper like I did. Um, and Joe March did too in Little Women, which is where makes me think that might be where I got the idea from. Um, but but Jamila's struggles too, again, are not, you know, it's not an issue book in the sense of like why, you know, about being a Muslim or about being Pakistani American. So it's not that she's facing, you know, racism or Islamophobia, even though it touches on microaggressions and um, but she's just dealing with, you know, fam changes in her family and how to control her temper and how to deal with, a, you know, a cute boy who comes into into town and is a part of her family. And, um, you know, when her sister grows, falls ill, how to manage that and, and make sense of everything. So it's, again, not something I would hope everybody could relate to. And it's, you know, the fact that she's Muslim is one part of her life and people get a glimpse into a Muslim family and it's just a, you know, a layer to her identity, but it's not just about that. If that makes sense. So for me, it was, it's really seeing that those types of stories are now accepted and, and, and desired is so huge for me. And that's what I just want to keep doing too, is just these different, different characters and their different experiences and, um, and not necessarily being about being a Muslim. You. Oh, well, here's a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you foresee yourself uh, ever sitting down and just writing 
the definitive, all right, here's all your Muslim questions answered book. <laughs> now leave me alone so I can go write about characters and their own separate stories. Like, all right, I've got that one. It's on the shelf. If you're looking for that book, there it is. Now come see me when you're looking for something that's not directly about all those things and checks all the boxes that maybe will make the reviewers happy. And like, finally, we have this comprehensive essay about uh, all the specific Muslim issues for a, a teen character <laughs> a character. No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the one thing that I realize, and and initially, you know, as, as one of the writers, you know, North American writers who was publishing uh, books about Muslim people, I definitely felt this pressure to represent everybody initially. And knowing that I'm a Pakistani American and that, you know, I bring my culture to my faith as well as, you know, my own self and my own level of practice and all of that, you know, I, I, I felt very much afraid of how my own community might react to my books, you know, and I thought, well, maybe in Night of the Moon, like, it's not Muslim-y enough, or, you know, the way the family is practicing, or the fact that I asked the illustrator to have the mother not wear the hijab, because in all the children's books I was reading to my son, that were written by Muslim publishers, and or Muslim authors, but published by Muslim publishers, um, you know, it was all very monolithic in, in the way that they practiced. And so for me, it was really important to show a different type of Muslim family that represented mine. Um, but then I was afraid of this backlash, you know, you know how, what, what, what might people think? Um, and even with the It's Ramadan Curious George book, I was like, you know, a little bit nervous about it. Like what, you know, I, I made sure the publisher, um, you know, included different skin tones and different, you know, women both wearing the hijab, not wearing the hijab and, and things like that, because I think it is important to try to represent that diversity within our, within the Muslim, you know, people who practice Islam. Um, but only over time did I start to realize that one, you know, I was happy to see that there were more Muslim authors being published. So that was a relief, but also that, you know, I cannot by any means be expected to represent almost 2 billion people in the world, you know, by myself and, and also just one very specific type of Muslim by myself, you know. Um, so this, these are just, you know, some stories about some Muslim people and we need so many more about all types of people. Um, and, and that's what's exciting about Salam Reads and that's what's exciting about what's happening in the industry now is that people are finally realizing that you can't just check off, you know, as a publisher, like, oh, I got my Muslim book, you know, done, um, because there's no such thing. And you're going to have, you know, all types of Muslims, all types of backgrounds, every language in the world, every race in the world. And so it, it's just another type of person. And I think people are slowly realizing that, which is exciting to see. Well, hopefully there will come a day where there's just another book that happens to have Muslim characters. And when that day comes, you will know that you were a part of building the foundations for that new world, hopefully. I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although hopefully it's coming sooner rather than later. I ask uh, all the editors and literary agents who come on the show as esteemed audience knows regularly. I ask them what they're doing specifically to increase diversity in traditional publishing what we're seeing um, being done, and what is the current state of diversity in traditional publishing? Where do you think we're at toward that goal of where we want to be? How, how far out are we from that? I think we're, I mean, compared to where it was when I started, I feel like we've made tremendous progress. Um, it is encouraging to see, um, you know, a, an emphasis on this and, and publishers wanting to add diverse titles or 
you know, the fact that we even call them diverse titles, you know, is, is speaking to the issue that, you know, hopefully one day we won't be calling them that. Um, they'll just be books. But um, we are seeing, you know, now with We Need Diverse Books and, um, you know, di- various diverse imprints, not just Salam Reads, but others and other publishers creating, um, you know, this priority is is huge. Um, you know, I, I know that the, the, I'm totally drawing a blank on the name, the Cooperative for Children's book center you know what i'm talking about cbc like they put out the data on um the on children's okay i'm sorry i have totally flubbed that <laughs> i can't, can't think which one um, that really know this stuff is what we'll say <laughs> yeah. yeah so the i think it says i'm totally blanking on the name but they publish um data on on you know the industry and which types of books are being published and we do see an improvement, which is nice, or a, a small percentage increase in, in diverse titles. But I think what's interesting is that some of them aren't being published by people from within those communities. So I think that's an interesting trend to keep watch, you know, to keep watching and how many what we call own voices titles are being published. And, um, and just, with, you know, I can speak most about the Muslim representation that, you know, it's, it's starting to expand a bit but we still need so much more diversity in in what is being published um and some communities that just are not represented at all um and you know i feel like now we're slowly starting to see more african-american muslim representation which was you know largely absent and i think you know people tend to associate muslim with immigrant and that's not the case i mean that's not the reality of, of islam in america and um i mean it's definitely part of it but there's you know, native population that has been Muslim for a very long time. And um, the African-American communities were perhaps like 30% of the American Muslim population. And we don't always think of that, you know, as a as a country. We often think of, of people being new to, to our country or Muslims being new to our country. So um, definitely a lot of work to be done in this area and, and the need for more, um, just more diversity of actual types of books too like we need more graphic novels we need more you know early readers we need in all types of books too it's it's um apart from all types of representation in those books but we just need more of everything because there's just very little in some in some areas that makes sense i think it was uh lamar giles when he was on here um, said that uh, he would know that we were at a successful place when we were seeing a lot of mediocre books being published by diverse voices. Uh, then, then we've got something. <laughs> Lots of mediocrity all around. Okay, now we're all... <laughs> I love that. That's a great point. That is a great point because it, you know, it feels like everything has to be stellar right now to, to get attention. Um, and, and they mostly are. And I hope they continue to be. But yeah, I see his point. It makes a lot of sense. Well, I think obviously... It goes without saying, you're going to continue to write uh, stellar literature um, regardless. I'm going to aim for (laughs) mediocre now. Thank you. (laughs) Um, What, um, uh, when you're, obviously there's there's some similarity to Little Women. How much of a remix are you trying to do? Is it just a passing similarity? uh, Or are you trying to do some form of retelling? So, um, yeah. So I initially was imagining it to be much more of a retelling than it ended up being. Um, I originally thought maybe it would be more of a young adult book and the characters would be a little bit older and 
closer to the age of, of, the, of the girls and little women. And I think Joe March is 16 when the book begins. Um, but Little Women is just this massive book and it spans many years of these girls' lives. And, and once I actually sat down to try to, you know, outline and write, I wrote, I think the first five chapters and I just didn't, it didn't feel right to me. Um, and I think part of me didn't want to mess with the classic also, cause I'm, I'm a purist and I, I love that book so much. And to the point where, you know, people would talk about their different favorite film adaptations and I hated all of them um until the Even most the recent. most recent with Meryl Streep and Bob Odenkirk. the most recent I actually loved yeah oh, and okay. I don't know if I just um was being more generous because I had done <laughs> done a read <laughs> inspired by um no I actually really loved it I thought it was so well done but I think I think maybe that fear of also offending a little women fan and um making them you know, question my intentions or why I chose certain things was in the back of my mind. But I think more than anything, it was about the voice. And as I was writing, it just, it just something wasn't clicking. And I decided to age it down to middle grade. And in doing so, the story changed drastically. Um, but what I ended up doing was take my favorite aspects of the book I love so much. So some of the themes, some of the, you know, the, the personalities of the main characters, um, the relationships and, and some major events too. And then I wove it into this completely new story. So it's definitely not a retelling. It's inspired by, um, but people who love Little Women have come back and told me that some had, some don't realize it right away. So I don't tell people until well, people know they've, you know, listened to your podcast, for example, but I don't, well, I don't said the book's description. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but on the jacket, it doesn't actually say, um, does it? Well, it, uh, maybe in the praise or the, the blurbs it does, but in the actual um, description of the book, we don't mention it. Oh, okay. Um so, and I know like marketing, whole section out, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. What was I saying? I'm so sorry. Oh, we're um, talking about uh, not feeling that you had to, you didn't want to tick off little women fans by uh, doing a yeah. one-to-one. Uh, yeah. So I think what I, what I ended up doing is what people who tell me sometimes when they read the book that they, they thought something felt familiar, but they didn't realize what it was at first. And then all of a sudden they catch on and they're like, oh, I see what you're doing here, but it's not immediately obvious to them. Um, and some people who maybe read Little Women many, many years ago don't, don't see it at all. Um, and others look for it and then they find these little Easter eggs and they're like, oh, I, I see how you reinterpreted that that moment or that scene. Um, I also didn't let myself pick up the book, the classic, and I have an old copy of that belonged to my sister actually that I used to read over and over again and um and i didn't I didn't read it once I decided I was going to write this book and I really wanted to rely on memory and I mean I read the book so many times I have a pretty good memory of it but I wanted to pick the scenes and the things that stuck out the most to me um or were significant to me in some way so I really consider the book a, a sort of love letter to my favorite book in in a way and um and something that was just so special and part of my, my growing up. And, and actually to what we were speaking about earlier in terms of representation or the lack thereof in my life, I think I, I really adored little women and didn't, didn't really think about why until more recently. Um, and I thought, you know, what was it about this book that I love so much? And I think in a weird way I could relate to these, this family and these girls who were growing up in, you know, the time of the civil war. Um, 
in a way that I didn't always relate to my peers, even at school, um, or, you know, my contemporary peers, because I, you know, as a child of immigrants, I was negotiating a different life and, and my, my parents had different rules sometimes than my friends. Like, you know, you can't go for sleepovers, people we don't know, or, you know, things like that. And, you know, when it came to dating or other things, they had these very different rules. And, I felt like the March sisters were living in a different society and like diff- gendered rules and, and just, you know, what society dictated. And, and I, I think I really identify with Jill, like so many people do trying to push back against what was sort of decided for her and what her life should look like. Um, and I thought maybe, you know, maybe that was why I, I just could relate to these girls in a way that maybe more, even more contemporary fiction, or even like I said, my, my friends in real life sometimes. So it was very comforting to me. And that's why I thought, you know, maybe this would lend itself well to a Pakistani. Initially, I thought, you know, Pakistani American retelling, because some of the traditions, even like even the idea of a marriage proposal. I mean, we still have that where um, it's it's sort of, you know, old fashioned, but it could be, you know, set up or have families involved and it'd be more of a, uh, you know, group proposal setting and things like that. So, um, you know, I thought that could be fun to explore. I've talked about this on, on another podcast, so I won't be able to point, but I, I think there's still some wisdom in that. Uh, I, I chose my own spouse. We're very happy together, but we are the exception to the rule. I know so many people that have chosen their own spouse. That was a terrible idea. Somebody should have stepped in and made a better choice for you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, let's talk uh, just a little bit uh, about uh, song. Um, what can you tell us about your next book coming out here in March? So um, what can I tell you about it? So when I first thought of, of Amina's voice as a book, I always um, imagined that there could be a second book very loosely. And I had an idea about, I knew her uncle coming to visit from Pakistan was going to be a significant part of the first book. Um, and that was actually based on something that in my own life, my uncle coming to visit when I was little and him being very similar to her uncle in, the, in that he was a bit gruff and intimidating. Um, he kind of made my mom nervous about trying to impress him. And um, and he was a bit more conservative and traditional than than my parents were. And so that was something that we were all conscious of when I was growing up. And so um, I introduced a char- very similar character in Amina's voice, but, you know, after getting to know him in a way that I hadn't had the chance to since he lived across the world when I was growing up, you know, we developed this really special bond. And, um, and so I always thought it would be lovely to have Amina visit him um, because that's part of her discomfort around him is things like not, not speaking the language well and not being as familiar, not feeling always at ease with, with Pakistani culture, which is the way it was for me growing up. So I thought it would be so exciting to put her there um, and have her try to figure out what what that's like. And so um, the book really gets to explore her being there and and then returning and um, and the impact that that experience has on her when she's trying to, you know, view her life here with that new lens of of having been in Pakistan and connected, connecting with this family and experiencing what that place is really like and falling in love with it and wanting to share that love with people back home, but they may not know how to receive that message or be very interested or, you know, they have their own notions or, or preconceived ideas of what it's like. So she's trying to grapple with all of that. Um, and, um, 
yeah, it was, it was just like a really um, a fun way to see her grow. And she's dealing with, you know, it's sort of a continuation of, of where she left off with her friends. And she um, meets a new friend and it's a boy and that raises its own little challenges in her, her life um, in terms of negotiating this friendship, but also seeing her grow musically and, and the ways she evolves and, and, and in terms of her confidence and how she tries to use her voice in different ways are all things that I, I wanted to explore. So um, really fun to go back and, and just be with that family again and, um, and, and decide, um, you know, her brother is a really important character to me and just seeing their relationship grow and how, um, you know, they're there for each other and, and get on each other's nerves and just sort of have this very typical sibling interaction that was fun to see and just how he turns out. And, and the other thing that was really fun for me was that after writing Amina's voice and, and getting to talk to so many kids about it and, um, and, and, and adults and librarians and other readers, um, just hearing a lot of questions and things that I hadn't thought about, you know, things that were very clear to me. Um, like for example, in, in Amina's voice, the, the mosque incident that happens for me, it was never important to, identify who did it and I just thought well the Randalls you know and a lot of times that type of thing is just never resolved but I realized that for so many kids that was this burning mystery <laughs> that who did it and when they had the chance to ask me I was like oh right I, I, I never thought about that kids have such a strong sense of justice and they want to they want to see it um so that was it was interesting to go back and sort of address some of the, the questions that I know kids had um, or just things that they wanted to see and, and to have had that feedback and to be able to go back and write. It was really fun. And I'm hoping that they'll be they'll be satisfied. Well, we can accept this vagueness in life because we don't have a choice. But in fiction, by God. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You got to give us clear, clear cut reasons and motivations. We need to know exactly who did what and why. And we need to see the <laughs> Exactly. So Amina's voice, Amina's song. Will there maybe be a third book that we can tease now? And if so, where do you go from voice song? What's the what's the third continuation of that? Oh, tell me, what should it be? <laughs> Crowdsource. <laughs> um, I I'm thinking about it. Amina's blog. There you are. <laughs> or podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it was funny when I when I first the first the book first came out. Um, you know, a lot of people think it's Amina, and that's a very common way of pronouncing the name. Yes, especially that's the way I've been reading it, and I'm horrified to hear myself. No, everybody does, and don't be horrified, because I took out a line in the book where she said how people usually say her name versus the way she pronounces it. And um, it's very early in the book where she talks about how people always say her name wrong, and I had that that in there and for some reason during the revisions I took it out and I one of the things I beat myself up about and one of the things I include in Amina's song is a part where she she corrects somebody who says her name wrong um and it's to the point where I'm always like do I just say Amina you know should I initially when I realized that everybody felt so bad when they heard me say it they're like oh um but that's who she is I, I couldn't uh and that's sort of just the Pakistani way of pronouncing this name um but when when somebody somebody who I think I was at an airport or something somehow it came up that I was I was writing children's books or that's why I was traveling or something like that and and so somebody asked me what's the title of your book and I said Amina's voice and he was like oh yeah it sounds and he, he as he was walking away he said sounds ominous and I realized that he thought it was ominous voice which I thought that's a great title for a book so creepy right sure. um and so yeah but it obviously wasn't 
um, if there was a third book, um, I think it would actually, it could work out really well because in, in book one, she's a sixth grader and in book two, she's a seventh grader. So I was just talking about how maybe it would be fun to see her go through middle school and finish middle school. And um, I kind of kept things a little open-ended and I'm on a song to, for that possibility. So we're just starting to talk about it and, and we'll see. I'd love to, I'd love to have there be a third. What I just heard is that you absolutely promised that there will be a third book. We can look forward to it in 2022. March your calendars, just the audience. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, it would be fun. It would be fun to see her continue to, to grow into the person she's becoming. And, um, and hopefully I can get more good feedback to use for the next one. So I do love that. Do you like, know at this point uh, what's next for you beyond March? Do you have um, another project? I do, yeah. So I'm. I have a series that um, I love called Zaid Salim Chasing the Dream, and um, right now it's it's three books featuring a boy named Zaid who's a lot like my my younger son, and um, he's this kind of scrawny kid who um, who loves basketball and um, suffers stomach aches and when he's nervous and and you know wants to make the best team in his league, um, but falls down a lot because he's so slight <laughs> and so he's trying to prove himself and it was just a really fun um to what we were talking about earlier a fun family to explore and introduce and it sort of has that um sort of simple community feeling I loved I love Ramona Quimby and Beverly Cleary books and so um you know very family-centric and neighborhood-centric stories and so I'm actually writing a companion series to the Zaid series uh, which will feature his sister Zara and it's actually a prequel to these books. So Zara's, yeah, his older sister um, in the series. And in these books, they'll both be younger. Um, so Zara will be about the same age that Zaid is in his series. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it'll be three books for now featuring Zara. We don't have a, a title yet, um, but it's been really fun to write. I just finished up the first draft of the first book. And um, I'm really excited to share that with readers and hopefully more middle grade. I've got some more picture books on the horizon. Um, I think after Amina's song in March, the next title to be coming out is a um, book six of the Unicorn Rescue Society series, uh, which I was really excited to co-author with Adam Goodwitz. And that was amazingly fun experience writing with him. And um, so lots of- For those who don't know, please tell us uh, more about that series. Oh, it's fantastic. So um, Adam is, for anyone who hasn't read Adam, and I'm sure many of you have, like he's just, he's so funny and brilliant. And the series is, um, it features a, a boy named Elliot and his friend Uchenna. And the two of them are part of this secret society called the Unicorn Rescue Society with, with a mission to uh, save threatened mythological creatures around the world. So uh, they have their um, the head of the, the Unicorn Rescue Society is Professor Fauna, this very um, eccentric and funny older gentleman. And they go on these adventures around the globe and, and save these creatures. So, um, yeah, so it's everything from a bass dragon to a sasquatch to um, a chupacabra. So it's really fun to see them, you know, traverse the world and also meet all sorts of interesting people and address different, you know, learn about different social issues in the process and different cultures. And so book six takes you to the Himalayas in Pakistan and um, kind of really rugged terrain and, and they go on, on their latest adventure. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but um, it was really, really, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun read and it was super fun to write. 
And um, I've never laughed as much while I was writing a book, but Adam's hilarious. And it was just, it was super, it's, it's super funny. So um, hopefully people enjoy that too. When you're coming in, you said that's book six and there's another author involved. A lot of that groundwork's been late. Does that make things easier for you since a lot of that hard stuff's been done? Does it make it harder? Cause now you have all of that. You have to, you have to catch up on and make sure you kind of keep in mind going forward. Um, I think because I loved it so much, it made it easy. You know, it was sort of as he, he had such strongly established characters and voices. And so, I mean, I just, you know, I tried to mimic his style because, um, you know, to make it flow because we sort of alternated chunks of the story. So he would write part and then I would write part and I would try to, you know, keep it similar and then we'd go back and edit each other. And so it was a really nice collaboration and a, a fun way to move the story forward. Um, but definitely I was a little bit nervous. I was like, I hope, you know, this doesn't sound off or really weird. It's <laughs> just not like what he wanted, but he was great. And um, it ended up just being really, really fun. And, um, and yeah, because the characters were there, I mean, I was conscious of, and I read all the other books. And so I was conscious of the continuity and making sure, but, you know, he was, he was great at, you know, figuring out that stuff too, if in case I slipped up and, um, and he was just so supportive and open, like he's just so committed to diversity and inclusion and about, you know, really showing, um, whatever aspect of, of my culture that I felt like I wanted to share. And it, that was really fun to talk through those things and what aspects we wanted of Pakistani culture we wanted to highlight, what, what things, what narratives we wanted to completely avoid, which I think is also, you know, an important part of, of the discussion in terms of how you might, even in terms of maybe trying to push back against dominant narratives that are negative, um, you might inadvertently yeah. reinforce them. And I think sometimes that, that happens. So that's something I try for, to avoid. For those who don't know, what, what kind of dominant narratives would we trying to avoid? So things like Muslim as terrorist. Um, so even if you were trying to, you know, show that that's not the case, you know, I feel like sometimes even if you just go there, um, even if it's like, let's say, not in this book, it wouldn't be appropriate in, in the Unicorn Rescue books, but let's say a different book you were trying to. And I thought about this, you know, in, in my Amina, my first Amina book, um, you know, oh, well, what if, you know, her older brother is, is, you know, accused of something or, you know, um, called something and then has to react to that or push back against that. It was still introducing that thought. And that was what I wasn't willing to do. Um, even if in the end, like he's vindicated or, you know, it's obviously this big misunderstanding or whatever it is. Um, I thought I would just rather just not have a Muslim child have to see themselves linked to that narrative at all in any way. Um, and that was something that my, my editor, Zareen, felt strongly about as well. And I feel, you know, really happy about that because I feel like it, in general, if you try to push back against what people may think by saying, no, no, we're not that, you know, sometimes they still hear the, the first part. And I think it's the same when, um, you know, the idea of, you know, oh, well, Muslim women aren't impressed, you know, instead of saying that you know, say what Muslim women are, you know, Muslim women are educated and accomplished and, you know, fashionable and successful. And that's what I tried to show in my, my picture book under my hijab. And it's, you know, not, you know, you don't have to define yourself by negating other people's thoughts of who you are, if that makes sense. And so um, Adam was, was great, like so just a great partner in terms of trying to pull out the things that we wanted to emphasize and um, things like hospitality and, you know, um, and just generosity and just, you know, really positive 
positive attributes of, of Pakistani culture. And, and that was really, really lovely. I'm watching our time, and I know it's it's flying by. We're already a little bit past where where I said we'd be uh, calling it a night. Are, are you okay for about maybe two, three more sure, questions? Sure. Or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Because uh, I always want to end while we're while we're still having fun. Yeah. Uh, we we've covered all. What haven't we talked about so far? <laughs> covered it all. But we haven't talked about flying saucers. An esteemed audience knows I never end an interview without asking everybody about flying saucers. So have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Ooh, so I have never seen a flying saucer. Um, ghost? Not quite, no. But in my tradition, there's a strong sense of, of jinn, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, and so everyone I know has a jinn story of, you know, where they may have encountered someone who may you know, seem like a ghost or someone that maybe isn't really there. Um, and uh, so I'm waiting for the time where I have such experience because so far, you know, like even somebody like my, my dad, who was a scientist and, you know, very, uh, a, you know, just a realist and, you know, not the most spiritual person in terms of things like this. Um, you know, he had a gin story. And I was like, okay, my dad has a gin story. So everybody has one. Um, and what, what is a gin story typically? So, How does that differ from a ghost story? Well, a gin in Islam is another entity. So we believe in humans and we believe in angels. And then the jinn are like another entity. So not quite ghosts, but they, they can sort of move between realms and they can take different forms. And so my dad's story, if you want to hear it, which is um, fascinating, was that I was when hoping he... you would you would tell him, but we might not <laughs> identify him, so he could deny. Yeah. It well, and interestingly, this this story is how I ended up writing Unicorn Rescue Society with Adam because when I met him, he was talking to me about you know mythological creatures and 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 I guess the series maybe he was talking about the series even I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like, oh, I have a story for you, and I told him the story, and then later on we realized well, maybe jinn isn't the right creature to mythologize, even though there is a mythology around them. Like genies and jinn are considered the same. And, you know, in, in like Arabian Nights, a lot of the stories are jinn related. Um, but I still felt like maybe I shouldn't venture there because it is a religious concept. Um, but uh, yeah, my dad's story is that when he was a child and he lived in a village in India before partition, um, there was a, a tree, he said it was a neem tree, and which is a type of tree we don't have here, I think. And um, he said that there were big stones, like almost like bricks, falling from this tree. And they kept falling. And he said that they thought at first that it was a trick and like the neighboring village was doing something. But he said these these stones kept continuing to fall out of this tree. And that they would land on the dirt and that no like dust would come up. And he said that his grandfather and like a friend were sitting and eating and they had like little, little dishes of food and how like a stone fell like right into the food, like never hit them, but it hit the food and how there was this, you know, all this confusion around what was happening. And he said they, they called a woman who was sort of a, a 
mystical woman and she told them that these are the children of jinn and they're playing and they're like having a good time and she said you just need to tell them to politely leave and so she did something i don't know what um some special prayers or i don't know uh request a polite request to tell them to to please go away and then and then it stopped so that was his story and and he's he i mean like i said my my very by the book scientist dad you know told this very uh hard to believe but kind of amazing story and i thought Okay, so dad's got a gin story. Um, and they all, they all t- seem to take place in like remote places, like trees. There's like an idea of like gin living in trees and, um, you know, seeing them at night and, you know, things like that. So who knows? But I thought it was <laughs> an I interesting thing. I was just thinking thing. if you're going to have mystical stones tossed at you, I would prefer they hit me and just bounce off. That way my lunch is still good. I can finish. <laughs> I know, right? Right. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I worked really hard on this lunch. I, I, I bruised, <laughs> I could have healed. I, I wouldn't have even noticed, but <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, well, pivoting uh, back back to books and uh, and and and, uh, and and more practical things. Um, how are you finding marketing books now during quarantine and the scare for COVID? Well, not the scare. The the very much the reality. Uh, of COVID-19. How are you finding ways to market your book and and get your voice out there versus what you were doing pre-pandemic? Well, I definitely, well, I stopped traveling. So I was doing a lot of traveling before and attending conferences and getting to be in front of people, um, you know, physically bookstore events and panels and um, lots and lots of school visits. So now everything's gone virtual and I'm still grateful for the chance to be able to talk to people through, you know, a screen, <laughs> but um, it is different. And I know people do have screen fatigue and, you know, I'm seeing, I, I haven't had, I, I had a book come out, a picture book, like the moon loves the sky come out right at the beginning of pandemic. So um, it came out March 12th. <laughs> so that was right oh, wow. as things were happening. Or Did I have that right? March 12th or yeah, March 10th, March 12th. And so it was that week when things really started shutting down. Um, and since then, you know, the paperback version of More of the Stories come out. The bind-up version of the Zaid Slim Chasing the Dreams series has come out. But I haven't had anything else new. So um, Amina Song is going to be the first um, since, you know, we've been entrenched in this new new world. Um, so it is it is a bit daunting in terms of how, how different it's going to be. Um, you know, I... I'm glad to see that there's some early love for it, just you know, excitement around it, knowing knowing that it's related to Amina's voice, which is which is heartening. Um, so I hope people will be interested in in hearing me talk about it. And you know, we're we're still trying to figure out. I know I know publishers are you know trying to pivot and trying to come up with new and creative ways to get the word out there. Um, you know, it's also a little bit tricky because things are hard right now, and and the world is you know, just seems to be this gigantic mess. And there's a lot of really big concerning issues that we're facing as a country and as a planet. And so it is, it is kind of awkward to be like, hey, you know, buy my book. That's all going to be sorted. It's going to be fine. I, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I really, really hope so. But in general, even like buy my books that already exist, like it's, it's just like this weird balance where, you know, I feel like 
of course, you know, I think books are important and, you know, I'm happy to see people turning to books in these times and, and finding comfort in them and, and entertainment when we can't go out. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky line and I'm trying to find the, the right balance. And of course, you know, I, I would love for people to read my books and buy my books and buy a lot of them. But of course, you know, I know that they have to figure things out. And um, so, yeah, we'll, We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about many things and that this, things will get better and that um, that I do believe books books make the world better. So one way we can. Well, hopefully books will get better and, and reach out to your local library esteemed audience. I'm sure they would be thrilled to hear from you. Um, my library has got most of their catalog available digitally through a couple of different apps that I can use. Or if I order my books, they will put them together and set them uh, outside the library so I can just go by for contactless pickup for free. Right. Which is uh, you amazing, can't beat that. Right? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And I know. Your local bookstores, obviously. Of course. Yeah. And then, you know, school librarians are still, you know, building their, their, their libraries and, I mean, everybody's just, you know, I know trying as hard as they can to make things seem as normal as possible for kids and to to share this excitement of new books coming out. And, you know, so there's there's that, too, and something positive to look forward to and to, you know, get kids excited about reading. And so there's there's that, too, of course, um, the fun part of the fun part of promoting is is imagining your readers and um, and getting to interact with them. That's for me the, the most exciting part. Um economics aside and survival aside <laughs> but um, no so I think there's that you know that that hopeful and very I think just this industry is such a lovely one to be part of because at the end of the day everybody cares about kids and loves kids and wants to see them be great readers and, and learn something about the world and grow up to be empathetic and you know warm and accepting people and so I feel like that is driving a lot of a lot of what people are doing right now and, and caring about right now. And so that's that's nice to see. And it's nice to see the books that are getting a lot of attention right now and with Black Lives Matter and some of the, you know, literature that's really being showcased, which I think is so important and um, vital, really. So so that those are all great things, I think, um, that the industry is doing and hopefully will continue to do. And so so I'm excited in that front. But it is it is it is different for sure. I won't, I won't lie. <laughs> it's different and a little bit scary, <laughs> but we'll see. Do you, you, you mentioned uh, thinking of your, your reader. Uh, do you have a, an esteemed reader in mind when you're writing? Do you have somebody specific you're writing for just a younger version of yourself or somebody you've met? Raised? <laughs> I, I would say it's a, com it's a composite, you know, and like we talk a lot about, you know, books as windows and mirrors and sliding doors. And, and I, I really feel like for me, to some extent, you know, I do write for a younger, a younger me and the stories that I loved reading. Um, and I just really did, did enjoy stories of, of the human experience and about, you know, relationships and friendships and, and neighborhoods. And I, I just love that, those dynamics and reading about them. Um, so that that's in mind in terms of like my taste in books, I think I keep, I keep myself in mind. And, um, and really, you know, I would say it's probably for, for kids like mine, you know, who I feel like deserve to be the heroes in stories and deserve to not only see themselves, but also be seen by their peers and as, as the kids who deserve to be on the covers of books and to, you know, have like the joy stories apart from the pain stories and, um, and, and to just be important and to be seen. And, and 
so there's definitely those kids in mind when I'm writing, but, um, but you know, I, I want my books to be for all, all readers. And, and that's been the most gratifying part of, of publishing has been seeing the, the incredible diversity of readers. And, um, you know, you asked me earlier, like as much as it makes me happy to, to have kids similar to mine or like me when I was a kid, reach out and tell me how much my books mean to them you know it's also like I just got the most beautiful message um, during quarantine of a little girl who said she read more to the story and she actually drew me a, a letter where she she copied the font like perfectly from the book cover it's gorgeous um, and she wrote inside that you know she she read it three times during quarantine and how much she loved it but also how it inspired her to write a family newspaper and of her own and you know I, from you know, her name, she didn't sound Pakistani American. Um, but, you know, just to see different kids from all different backgrounds, take take something from from what I've written and, um, and, and just the connections that they're able to make that, you know, even though I'm, I'm, you know, whatever I am, and, you know, I, I go to Sunday school in my church, and I understand how Amina might, might have felt, you know, going to her, her mosque, or, you know, just just the connections kids make, it's, it's incredible to see um, that they're able to put themselves in other people's shoes and, and relate. And, and we all knew that they were, were we know that they're able to do that, but I feel like the publishing industry was a little slow to, to realize that or accept that for many years. Um, so yeah, definitely all of them, I guess is the answer. <laughs> I write for everybody. <laughs> well, steamed audience, keep, keep reading these books and magically the publisher who will have made more money will suddenly continue <laughs> to publish these types of books. It'll be a virtuous cycle. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And yeah, there's many, much to be gained, I think, all around um, by having books that will help bring us together, I hope, more than more than we are right now. Yes, no, beyond publishers' profits, wouldn't it be nice to live in a better world in exactly. which everyone was a little bit more empathetic and a little bit more understanding? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and kids, I think, have that naturally. And that's what's beautiful about it is that it's not, you know, not doing anything but but sort of appealing to their inherent sensibility right they they're open and they're they're accepting and i think that the negative stuff is taught to them they're not going to think that unless unless somebody poisons their minds i think they're you know so i think it's it's great to give them the antidote to a lot of negative thinking with with great books Oh, rest assured, it'll be out there probably a couple of YouTube clicks away <laughs> at any given point. They can they can be radicalized and be exposed to all kinds of terrible information. So it's good that they're going to have these books and a good base so that when those that poison comes along, they're going to be immune to it. They're going to have had the, the education they need to avoid falling into that trap. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. In fact, actually, I will tell you, you asked me earlier and I forgot this story, but one of the most significant experiences I think I had as an author was um, during a school visit. I went to a, a small um, private school that was um, sort of an experimental school for, um, for kids. And it was a, a mixed um, high school. So it was all, all grade levels together. And um, I guess initially it was kids who were sort of at risk to not graduate was the model, but they found that this community-based school, sort of a I don't think it was a co-op actually, but, um, you know, just had this really high success rate in re retaining kids. And so I was invited, um, to speak to them and they had all read up to, I think it was page 107 of Amina's voice 
And so we had, we sat around and I got to really, you know, get to know these kids in a short time and talk to them and, you know, they, and greet them by name and have a real dialogue. And they were asking great questions and we just had this amazing conversation. Um, and at one point, this one little boy who had been, well, not little, he was a young man. He, um, he spoke up and, and he talked about how he was raised in a family and that was very different. And he said, my family's really racist. And, um, those are his how, words. How old was the boy? He was a 10th grader. Wow. Um, and he said, um, and I hear things all the time, like Islam teaches American, uh, Islam teaches Muslims to hate Americans. Um, and you know, it was like, a, he was being taught Islamophobic things. And, and he said something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I'm just so happy that I can, that I can be here and that I can learn the truth. And it was just like everything in my power not to start sobbing at that moment, but it was, it was just so moving. And just to see this kid who was grappling with, you know, what he was being exposed to or being taught, um, and, 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 and challenging that and, and thinking, um, you know, recognizing that it wasn't the way he wanted to think, um, was, was really, really overwhelming and powerful. So, um, I do, I do believe in the power of books <laughs> and, and stories and changing hearts that way. Well, my, uh, last question for you is always, uh, some variation of if you could go back toward the start of your career and give yourself some advice or as many pieces of advice as you like, that would have made a crucial difference and made your path to where you're at currently a little bit easier and might make easier the paths of all the writers that are listening. Uh, what would you go back and tell yourself? Probably that, that I could do this, that it was something that wasn't off limits to me. Um, and I think I, I think I, I felt like writing was this sort of club, you know, that I wasn't a part of. And I think also I, I thought that writers found it easy this is something I talk to kids a lot about when I when I visit schools that for me writing wasn't easy and even though I enjoyed doing it I had a lot of self-doubt and uh, that voice inside my head that told me that my writing was garbage um, or I'd use other language by mistake <laughs> um, and how you know I needed to silence that voice over time and realize that you know that was my my internal you know critique and, and my desire to write better, but, you know, I couldn't let that stop me. Um, but that writing for me, like first draft writing is really painful. And it's not that writers find, choose to be writers because it's easy to them, which is what I thought that they're just sitting there with a smile on their face and they're just typing and, you know, and, and, and oh, I know a couple like that. I hate them. <laughs> I hate them too. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I thought if you weren't that, then it wasn't for you, you know, in a way. And I, I think that that held me back for a long time, that self-doubt, you know, not, not believing that it was something that anybody can do. And I really do believe that anybody can do it if, if you want to. Um, and yeah, and I wish I had, I had known that earlier because I probably would have tried sooner and, um, and thought it was something possible. My esteemed audience knows I could never hate an author. Yes. Even Ayn Rand. We love Ayn Rand here too. <laughs> um, where you know where can uh, esteemed audience find you online uh find more information about your book follow you on social media all that good stuff oh well i have a website which is you know not the most beautiful or fancy thing but um you can connect with me i'm there and see um all my books and um updates uh i'm on 
Instagram and on Twitter, mostly um, Instagram the most, I would say, followed by Twitter and on Facebook. I will, I will connect with you if you want to friend me or whatever the terminology is. Um, and Facebook, I'm not as active on, but I, but I do, I do post from there from time to time. But if you want to engage with me, Instagram, Twitter, or emailing me through my website would be the best way. Thank you so much. This has been just an absolutely wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on all of these different issues we've covered. I feel like we nailed it. I, I feel like Thank someone you. could listen to this and legitimately receive uh, college course credit for having taken <laughs> a, a class in publishing children's literature. Oh, thank you. No, it was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for, for having me and all the great questions. Well, esteemed audience, as always, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com for thousands of interviews with publishing professionals, authors, editors, literary agents, folks I know you would be interested in. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.